please remain standing for the reading of our word Um, from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He answered and said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your word and for a clear revelation of Jesus Christ today. And Lord, we just ask that whatever is said here, whatever is spoken, Lord, that it would be from you. And uh, Lord, that whatever is from me would pass away. And Lord, we do ask that as you call us to yourself, Lord, that we would answer the call. That we would come and obediently follow you. But Lord, that we would know a love and a nearness in that obedience. That we would know the joy of being near to Christ Jesus, our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may, you may be seated. So, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm, my name is Nathan. Um, my wife and I are members here at the church. I'm very thankful for this opportunity to bring God's word to you today. Um, before I begin, I do want to take this opportunity to thank Leo and Karina for all that they do for, our, for us and for our church, for myself in particular. They sacrifice, and they give, and they give, and I just want them to know that we love them and respect them deeply. I also want to take this opportunity to thank everybody who's been praying for me. This has been an unusually difficult season for me, and preparing for this sermon has uh, humbled me greatly. So, thank you for your prayers. Um, Before we dive in, I'd like to start kind of talking about... um, kind of like the 10,000 feet up view, the bird's eye view, if you will. Um, What's happening in this text as we explore the parable that is very familiar to most Christians, the Good Samaritan? 
What I would propose to you is that there's really three things happening across the course of this text. There's a question, there's an answer, and there's a big problem. The lawyer asked Jesus a question, they work together on an answer, and they come to the cliff edge of a problem. A problem that's not really answered in this text, a problem that is set so deep in the hearts of humanity that we are all yearning for the answer, for the solution to that problem. It's what sets people searching for God, even if they don't believe in God, it sets them searching for meaning, for fulfillment, for thrills, to numb the not knowing. It takes humanity where we will not willingly go, a place where God leads us, a place where God in this text leads this lawyer. And I would submit to you an analogy that it takes us to the gaping chasm that is at the heart of the cosmic conflict, the thing that separates humanity from God, the problem that created people are not united with God. It's common for Christians in our culture today to believe the thing that separates us, that this chasm is our suffering. But it's very clear from Scripture that it's our sin. Our sin separates us from God. And that on the other side of this chasm, we have an opportunity to live connected to God, in right relationship with God. I want you to know that this idea, this solution that God offers, is so big and so beautiful that you can't even put your arms around it. That even as I explored this, that the scriptures and the answers to this question, the this, this solution that God offers, consumes so much of scripture, so much of our lives, so much of God's efforts on our behalf that I must acknowledge today that I will fall far short of offering you that solution. But I'm actually pretty glad because it's so big that the wonders of God's mercy and grace are truly inexhaustible and that while we will skip like a stone across the surfaces of the waters of his mercy, we will see his glory. So let's start in this text with a question. This question comes from a context. It comes from the, from the passage before it. And even if you haven't been with us in the past Sunday mornings, or Sunday afternoons, <laughs> the past Sunday afternoons where we've explored Luke chapter 10, I would propose to you that the context for this starts back in Luke, verse, Luke 10, verse 17. I'll just summarize it for you. In, starting in verse 17, the 72 who Jesus sent out on their missionary journey return. And they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing that they had received great power over spirits and dark forces. And Jesus tells them not to rejoice in this, but to rejoice in the great salvation that they have in Christ, that their names are written in heaven. The next paragraph starts with, in the same hour. So we know it's at the same time. Jesus says, that only those whom he reveals himself to will know him and the Father. This implies that at the center of salvation stands Christ Jesus. He stands himself, right? He's having this conversation, 
and he's saying that he's at the center. The next paragraph, it starts with, he said privately. So we must assume that the first two paragraphs were public. He said privately to the disciples how blessed they were to hear these things, to see these things that prophets and kings of old longed to see and hear. And then we get to our passage today, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Honestly, it sounds like the start of a bad joke, okay? But I promise you, it's the start of the unfolding of this great and big solution that God offers us. So I'll read it to you from verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, something we have to understand here is that a Jewish lawyer is not like a lawyer in our modern culture. For the Jews, there is no separation of church and state. A lawyer is a master of all the law, the civil law, the criminal law, and the religious law. All matters that people in the Jewish culture might struggle with and need a counselor for, they would go to a lawyer. And this, this lawyer wants to test the implications of what Jesus has been saying, that, that the salvation that is offered to the disciples comes through Christ. He's concerned that maybe Jesus is wrong, and that concern may be genuine, but he thinks this is different than what he's heard before. It's unusual. So he stands up to put Jesus to the test. So the next part reads, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. What a question. The answers to this question are so simple a child can understand and so complex that as we explore it, we will spend all of eternity discovering new things. Let's read the answer. Jesus doesn't answer. He says, what is written in the law? He asks the lawyer about his expert opinion. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer answers in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What we need to understand here is that this is the heart of the law, loving God and loving our neighbor. In fact, this first part about loving God is a reference to the Shema, which is a Jewish prayer that the, the Hebrew people have been praying since the time of Moses. It starts in Deuteronomy 26, I'm sorry, verse, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6 with Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to this part that the lawyer quotes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus himself affirms this answer about this being the center of the law. We see that in Mark chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 22, two other gospels, that when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus gives this same answer about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. 
In fact, in Matthew 22, verse 40, he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He says everything hangs on this. Everything hangs on this. All the law and the prophets. All that has been revealed to people before the time of Christ. But I would tell you, this is still a partial answer. This is still a partial answer because it doesn't involve Christ. It doesn't involve Christ. And Jesus is going to try to lovingly reveal this to the lawyer. And whether the lawyer sees it or not, it can be lovingly revealed to us. So, let's get into the two things that this problem, this problem that is presented to the lawyer So to find those, we're going to go back to verse 29, and we'll read to the end of the passage. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's asking who his neighbor is. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three? This is Jesus talking. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. There are two profound problems that I want to point out to you. First, No one can justify themselves. No one can be justified before God on their own efforts. And it even says here the lawyer was seeking to justify himself. The second thing is no one can uphold the law without Christ. And that's what the parable is trying to expose in the heart of the lawyer. And for us, I hope, So I want to submit to you first three ways that we might seek to justify ourselves in a similar error that this this lawyer might be making. And I want you to know that justifying ourselves is the kind of mistake that people who love the law make. People who know and love the law are the ones who would try to be just. People who are openly defined of the law could care less if they are justified or just. But people who know the law, who are most familiar with it, are the most vulnerable to trying to justify themselves. 
We try to justify ourselves by comparison. I'm better than all the people around me. I remember there were many times in my own life where I have compared myself to others and thought, I'm good. I'm good enough. I don't need to be better. It's all the striving and effort. It's it's okay. As long you know, it's like trying to outrun a bear, you know, like you just have to be faster than the people you're with. And comparison is is no way to be justified. However, it is the most common assertion of people in our society today when they try to answer the question, how will they inherit eternal life? When when people are asked, Why are you going to heaven? Why do you know that you're going to heaven? People say, I'm a good person. I never hurt anybody. I'm a good person. They use a comparative analysis as if hell was a bear chasing them. But it's judgment from a holy God. It's not a bear. The second is complacency. Complacency or sleepy. We're not paying attention. We're not noticing or caring if we're, if we're really just. We take, we take the law and that, that our righteousness in it is, we take it for granted. We could do this in two ways. We could do it by sort of not paying attention, the sleepy side, or we could do it by running from it and trying not to address our need to be made right with God. I also empathize with this running from it. I, I know that there were many years of my own walk with God that I feared greater intimacy with God because I felt for a long time that if I knew God better, I would be exposed even more to how evil and wretched I am. And that kind of complacency, that I don't need to seek God more, I shouldn't read my Bible, why should I try to witness to these people, why should I grow in grace? Fear is a form of complacency. Fear is a taking for granted the justifying work of the cross. The third is corruption. And if you can't tell, these are all C's. Okay? Comparison, complacency, and corruption. Corruption and distortion of the scriptures. For this, I would like to um, cite John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is Jesus talking to Jews who are upset with him at the pool of Bethsaida for healing somebody on the Sabbath. This is Jesus trying to explain to them that they've looked at the law, they've searched the law, and they've, they've, uh, they've tried to find eternal life in the law all by itself. But they don't realize that the Old Testament law, as it says in verse 39, they bear witness about me, John chapter 5, verse 39. And then in verse 40, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And when I would propose to you the lawyer is distorting the scripture, that he is corrupting it, that he is believing things that are untrue about it because he does not realize or maybe he willingly will not acknowledge that the scriptures are about Christ and his centrality. 
It's also a New Testament problem, though. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter writes in verse 16, when he's talking about how difficult it is to understand Paul's writings, <laughs> he says that those, they're really complicated, right? He, the, the, and he says uh, that there are some things in Paul's writings, in them, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. Do not corrupt the scriptures. There is no way that by corrupting the scriptures we will be justified. I would submit to you that the second problem that the lawyer faces is not just justifying himself, but it's that he believes he could uphold any part of the law. And the way that Jesus expounds this to him is by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what we need to realize in our culture and our today is that for this lawyer, a Jew, the Samaritan people are a hated odorous people. Jews and Samaritans have hated each other for a long history. Their societies are opposed to each other. Their religions are opposed to each other. And they, they continue even at the time of Christ. It started back in 930 BC with the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is a king in the south, and Jeroboam is a king in the north, and Rehoboam in the south has, has Jerusalem. He has the temple. He has the priests. He has the worship system. He has the religions, the heart of the Jewish people. And Jeroboam, wanting to hold on to power, almost as soon as the kingdoms are separated, creates his own parallel system to keep his power and keep the people from returning to Judah. And they immediately start sacrificing to idols, golden calves, just like happened in Exodus. They have a separate place of worship. They make their own feast days. It was appalling to the people in Judah. Eventually, even the, the Samaritans in the northern kingdom intermarry with foreigners as they are taken over by Assyria. The problem continues in 722 BC when the Samaritans oppose the right worship of God. The Jews are returning to the southern kingdom of Judah from their own captivity in Babylon, and the Samaritans try to prevent them from rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls of the city. After they get the walls and the temple rebuilt, the Samaritans continue to try to oppose the right worship of Yahweh, and the priest at the time has to throw one of the Samaritans out of the temple because he put a place for himself to sleep in the temple. And even at the time of Christ, the Jews and the Samaritans are still fighting viciously and even killing each other to the point that the historian Josephus records that Roman soldiers had to come in and put down violence between Jews and Samaritans. So what we need to realize is that for this lawyer, this parable exposes how he could never love his neighbor because 
Jesus is saying that's, that's how he's, def- this parable, he's defining for him who a neighbor is. He's saying, not only is the Samaritan your neighbor, but in the parable he's saying that Jews don't even love each other well enough to help each other, and they need to love Samaritans. Um, and this, this, this lawyer exposes himself because he won't even say the Samaritan. In the last verse of our text, he says, actually it's the second to last, oh, third to last. Um, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He won't even say the Samaritan. He's like, the, the, the merciful guy. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to say Samaritan. So for the rest of us, we can't do it either. We cannot justify ourselves or be made right before God on our own efforts. And the challenge remains the same at the end of the parable. You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise? We must understand that this statement from Christ condemns us utterly. We stand at the mouth of the chasm that separates us from God, trying to go and do likewise. And apart from Christ, where this lawyer stands, there's no chance of that. I'd like to share with you three scriptures that show us that there is no righteousness apart from Christ. Starting in 1 John 1.8, it says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Then in Romans 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands God, no one seeks God. And in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The third verse from Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So we see that in 1 John 1.8, we can't say we're righteous. In Romans chapter 3, we can't do righteousness. And then in Galatians 3, we're cursed by it. Right? There, there's no way out. It doesn't feel like a loving law. And that's what it says even in the Galatians 3 uh, passage in verse 19. It says, why then the law? If there's no chance, we could never live up to it. Why would you give it to us? And what I would say, where we're at now, we stand at the chasm and there, we are not seeing a way across. If you're the lawyer... If you're not accepting Christ, there's no way across. And when we ask the question, why the law, we need to understand three things. First, it reveals our need for God and really our need for a Messiah. We need a bridge to cross the chasm. Galatians 3.23 says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So, 
in the Old Testament, the law was just a guardian to keep the people until Christ. The law is showing us that we need him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, it says, he's talking about the law here, okay? It says in verse 7, Now if this ministry of death carved in letters on stone, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, now if this ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of it, its glory, which was being brought to an end, right? So that's in verse 7. He's talking about how the glory of the law is a ministry of the death. Of death. Then we're going to skip down to verse 14 because he explains a lot of stuff there about how the, the law of death and the glory of the spirit and life in Christ, how that's fulfilled and changed. But he, I think he makes it a little more clear if we, as we move down to verse 12. It says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What was being brought to an end was the law. But their minds were hardened, and to this day, when they read the old covenant, the law, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is it revealed that the law can be fulfilled. Second, why then the law? The second reason is it connects us equally to God. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. There are no super-Christians. There's just one class. Just one class of Christian. If you are made right before God, it's the same. It's the same as everybody else, and God gets all the glory. That's the third reason. God gets all the glory. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now the law came to increase trespass. What's God doing here? Trying to increase trespass? It says that the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all to reveal God's glory in that he could redeem us from, from the curse that is the law. So let's go back to the chasm. We're still on the wrong side. We're separated from God. But the law shows us the chasm for what it is. That sin has separated us from right relationship with God. But I want to tell you that God is going to get us to the other side. God is going to bring us to the bridge that crosses the chasm. Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this passage because it's just so amazing, okay? But we're going to highlight a couple things. I'm going to come back. But starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, it says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be a holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I'm going to skip down to verse 8 because it's cool. It says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. What I would point out here is, well, it's a pretty amazing text, but what I would point out here is that God called us before he even created us. Before the foundations of the world, he predestined us for adoption to himself that we should be a holy and blameless people before him. He brings us to the solution to how we cross the chasm. Romans 5 expounds this idea by saying that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in verse 8 of Romans chapter 5. And verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet his enemies. Not only before the foundations of the earth, but while we were actively violating his law and defying him, he loved us and chose us and healed us. So God brings us to the bridge. He shows us the chasm, and then he brings us to the bridge. The third thing is he equips us to cross it. He equips us. He gives us the ability to cross this bridge. We can't even, even when offered the opportunity to be healed from our sin, we need his grace. We need his grace. First, he does this through a perfect cleansing. In Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. He's talking about perfect justice. Perfect justice where every sin is punished. Every evil made right through the death of Jesus Christ. But justifier in that perfect mercy can be conveyed to us, every sin forgiven, every sin washed clean from us. He cleanses us perfectly. The second is that he gives us the white robes of righteousness, the righteous life of Jesus, and we get to wear it. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has gone, the new is come. He's not the same person he used to be. The person who walks with Christ isn't wearing his own righteousness. In the eyes of God, we wear Christ's righteousness. The third thing is that he gives us sustaining faith. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He must believe. He must believe in faith that God is going to follow through on his promises. That he exists. He's real, right? God's real. But that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He's going to sustain us. Mark, and I would tell you that what's important to realize here is, as we encourage you to have faith in God is that sometimes we make this mistake that we have to stir up in ourselves greater and greater faith. But Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 17 that if they have faith as small as a mustard seed, they can move mountains. And he tells a man who's asking Jesus to heal his son, but doubting it openly to Jesus' face in Mark chapter 9, he, the guy doubts Jesus can heal his son, and then Jesus is like, well, I guess you don't need me. And so the guy falls on his face and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus honors that and heals this man's son. So you can have small and weak faith, and it could be sufficient faith. Why is that? It's because faith itself is not the thing. Faith is a pathway. Faith is a connection. It's about the thing it connects you to. And I'm telling you that that faith is supposed to connect us to Christ. And if we need to cross this chasm, we cannot do it by stirring up greater faith. If we stir up greater faith to go ziplining across the chasm on a piece of dental floss, it's not going to work out. But if we do it by having faith in Jesus Christ, there is no weight this bridge cannot hold. He is sufficient. And then, when we make it to the other side, God keeps us. He seals us to himself. He sustains us in his righteousness and power. 1 John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God? It's a high bar. Should we go on living as like perfect lives of righteousness? Well, it also says a lot in 1 John that none of us are righteous and we can't call ourselves righteous, but that we need to continually be repenting. But So we can't go on sinning. We have to keep repenting and being made clean. But what I would point out to you is that on the other side of the chasm, it's God who sustains these efforts. There's effort, but God sustains them. That you still have to do things, but not on your own strength. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, you've obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying here that as they try to obey God, God will give them the desire and the ability to follow through on this obedience. That God is not going to say, obey me, obey me, obey me, and walk off and hope we can figure it out on our own. He's going to give us power and strength 
in that Second Corinthians passage, it talks about it being through the Spirit. Through God's Spirit, we are given this new life. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, starting in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, body, and soul be kept blameless, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, he is faithful. He will surely do it. Wait a second. I need to be blameless, and I need to be my whole spirit, body, and soul. Yet it is God who is faithful to make sure that we do this. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we stand on the other side of the chasm with Christ's power sustaining us. Yet the lawyer, looking to justify himself, looking for hope, looking to find God in the law alone, apart from Christ, stands no chance. He has no chance of justifying himself. He has no chance of upholding the law. He has no chance of crossing the chasm and being made right with God, of having eternal life, because he is not seeing that Christ is the only way. So church, let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you've done here, and Lord, just how you do it. It's just amazing, God, and Lord, I ask that as we, as we try to uphold the law as we try to obey you, God, that you would give us strength and power. And Lord, that I ask that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And that as we try to, through Christ, see your glory, that the law would not be blinding, but it would be a blessing. That the law would just continue to point us to our Messiah and our Savior the one who gives us life. Lord, may we not find ourselves like this lawyer does, justifying ourselves and trying to uphold your law. But Lord, we ask that you would in us do all that it takes for us to realize our sin, to repent for our sin, to be made clean and righteous to wear Christ's white robes of righteousness and to be sustained walking with you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.